Welcome to the Indian Science Show. I'm Annie. And I'm Turtle. And this is a podcast where we bring different worldviews together into conversations about science in Indian country. On today's show, we talk about ethnobotany, even though we get way off topic a bunch of different times. <laughs> Lots of times. Yeah. And th this is an area that Annie's done some a little more looking into specifically mm -hmm. than I have. So she's got some cool resources that she brings up. Oh, yeah. We even go back to like 4000 BC and yeah. talk about some stuff there and even some crazy things that Egyptian women used to do to tell if they're pregnant. Yeah, I know. That was really surprising that that's actually legit and it, mm -hmm. it worked pretty good. Mm -hmm. And we get into definitions as well as kind of some of the first uses of this term ethnobotany. And we also look at it from two different angles. We look at it from the botany, kind of the academic science side. And then we also look at it from like the community perspective mm -hmm. and actually ethnobotanist within an indigenous community is a very different type of role to play than an ethnobotany that was trained academically at an institution that's studying indigenous plants. Yes. It's a lot of understanding how plant use was and how people evolved with plants and how that relationship may have changed throughout the years. Yeah, and how it really it really comes down to that thing, the relationships, how <laughs> that is the main difference between botany and ethnobotany. Yep. And we wrap things up by talking about as usual what we're grateful for mm -hmm. and then a little a little bit of a promotion for no our our uh, our merchandise campaign that's going on right now. So go ahead and sit back and enjoy the episode. This one was a, a little different than kind of how we usually do things, but mm -hmm. I think it went well. Yeah, I had a fun. lot of freeform talk on ethnobotany. Greetings and welcome to today's episode. I'm glad to be talking about this subject that we're talking about today because it's kind of one of my one of my uh, loves for back mm -hmm. from when I was in undergraduate school is the nature of human plant relations yep yeah i well it's new for me i guess <laughs> and that's the kind of weird thing about a lot of this stuff is it's it's new because the word is kind of mm -hmm. not something we grew up using right but i've always gone out in the forest and looked at these trees mm -hmm. maybe not like my brother but as a relative yeah. and and there's kind of there's kind of a funny connotation to tree hugging, but I've been right. I've been hugging trees since I was a little kid, <laughs> and not because I'm a tree hugger, but because I I wanted to embrace my buddy, my right. friend, or like what was that superstar where she would make out with the trees? <laughs> yeah, you know what? I forgot. About I've that done movie. that too. <laughs> just making out with a random tree, just hugging it. Yeah, yeah, and you got to use the tongue because if you're not if not if you're not using tongue, then the tree's gonna get a little offended and, and be like, "Hey, how come you're how come you're treating that tree different than me?" <laughs> well, but before we get going into that, let's read another review from iTunes. This one comes from Trees Please, and it they gave us five stars. Thank you for that. Yay. And they say, Turtle and Annie talk about real issues and problems as well as solutions. We can all relate to struggles of life and wanting to pursue what you really want while trying to balance everything. Listening to these podcasts has helped me be more focused on what I really want to pursue and ju to just do it. Yay. Nice. Thank I you. like that. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you, Trees, please. We're definitely grateful to help you see that i i wish i wish i could just kind of snap my fingers right and everybody in the world would be like whoa all i gotta do is show up and do stuff 
that'd be sweet because I really agree with that, that most of the time, if you really want something and it's important enough to you in your life, all you got to do is just start. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of fit, you'll make mistakes. You'll probably break a couple things. You might ruin a relationship or two, mm-hmm. but you're going to learn and you're going to grow. And I mean, if if you're learning and growing, there's very little negativity about it mm-hmm. as long as you're moving forward um, and acknowledging your mistakes. So thanks for that, Trees, please. And and anybody else you want to leave a review, make sure you go on iTunes and drop us five stars just because. <laughs> but if not, definitely let us know how we can get to five stars in mm-hmm. your opinion. Yeah, we definitely would love some feedback. Yes. Any type of feedback at this point would be great. That reminds me of a Tony Robbins quote that I like. He says, there's no such thing as failure, only feedback. True. I mean, I think that feedback in any forms is good as my thesis is <laughs> in the process of being fed you, back you know, to you fed back to me in ways <laughs> yeah yeah and it's not always fed back with a, a a silver spoon no not always yeah i know it, it's that's really tough to to try to listen mm-hmm. while you're so invested in something and then someone's telling you you telling you nope you're wrong Right. And, and like, I don't know. <laughs> that's really hard. But that's, I think, one of the benefits of being a scientist is that's kind of our job mm-hmm. is to be able to listen when we're wrong and change. And that's kind of not, it's kind of not something humans are generally good at, in my experience. We usually don't like change and we're far more comfortable and willing to just go with the flow if we're uncertain about that change. Mm-hmm. Like, people are way better, more comfortable being certain about their failure than uncertain about their success. Right. And I know that's true for me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that just like submitting that first version of it, of something that you're super proud of, but then as I was reading it, I was like, oh, I get it. Like, Mm -hmm. I get why that probably should not be there, or I should be talking about something else, or I should narrow down what I'm talking about. Yeah. But, yeah. That's really tough, too, to actually uh, be on topic with your Mm -hmm. writing and have it flow well. And uh, before we get going into the show, I, I just want to quickly apologize for any of the background noise. We didn't really anticipate there being a, a whole construction crew outside <laughs> today. So if you hear any clanking or beeping, that's what's going on. They're building stuff. Yeah. Whole brand new Syracuse event center or something. I don't know. Yeah. Workout center or it something. It looks like it's going to be pretty sweet. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, we probably won't be here when it's done. <laughs> no, probably not. But oh well. Hopefully not. <laughs> Hopefully we'll be yeah. graduated and, and have our master's at that point. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So I don't think we actually talked about what we we're going to talk about. Oh, yeah. Indigifact. Oh, Indigifact. What's our Indigifact? That's actually a really good question. The Indigifact is a little out there, but but it's pretty legit. It's mm-hmm. a totally legit thing. And I'll oh, yeah. leave, I'll just hand that over to Annie. She's the expert on when this. I, yeah, exactly. When I was growing up, like this was my path. Like I was not deviating from this because I used to be like a little weird kid who would love like sci-fi. And I like on Saturday mornings, the sci-fi channel was my favorite thing because they would just play like really, really low money making movies on oh the yeah sci-fi channel. classic b movie sci-fi yeah. <laughs> cheesiness i can see you doing that my favorite thing and well and also i think that being indigenous people we have a lot of like lores and myths and and all this stuff about like bigfoot mm-hmm. flathead like monster so you're kind of like raised on it so i started getting into it and so i came across cryptozoology 
Indigifact. Indigifact is cryptozoology. Facts. Not a lot of people know because I think that when people think about like Sasquatch, it's like this big thing that is like fake that you can't really study and then it's just kind of this myth. Oh, yeah. But there are people, because there is a degree program, and I wish I found out where that is, but I looked into it, where you can actually get your degree in cryptozoology. And mm. so cryptozoology is the study of and search for animals, and especially legendary animals, such as Sasquatch, usually in order to evaluate the possibility of their existence. Oh. Hmm. That's that, that that's an interesting part of it that usually to mm-hmm. evaluate the possibility of their existence. Yeah. Hmm. So a lot of them is like kind of just like making sure that you, you know, it's just to see if it could happen. Yeah. Is this bullshit? Yeah. Because I had, and I actually asked, I, when I was at Haskell, my advisor was a um, evolutionary biologist. And so I asked her, I was like, do you think Bigfoot is possible? Cause she, she knows all of evolution and she's like really knowledgeable and she's mm-hmm. like a great person. And <laughs> she was like, no, <laughs> just like Fada was like, no, laughed at me. And I was like, Oh shoot, I still want to. But then I have a story of like my dad's aunt that swears that he, that she was in the mission mountains and smelled Bigfoot. Oh yeah. So you have I smelled these... Bigfoot once. Yeah. I it... smelled a Bigfoot once. <laughs> a large, a large toe. toe. <laughs> I smelled a big toe once. Oh no. <laughs> my own big toe. <laughs> or like how little kids eat their toes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've done that. My little sister, my Aaron sent me a video of her son just like chewing on his toenail and I was like, "Oh, that's so gross." <laughs> yeah. Or there, there's something about like w- with a partner. Like I'm totally down to suck on certain uh, certain no, people's toes. No, no. But even then, if it's all if they've been if it's like all nasty and <laughs> dirty and i'm gonna have him watch that shit first <laughs> but, uh, but i'm still down just, just mid, gotta watch it just mid-stop be like you should go take a shower real quick and then we can continue <laughs> yeah what are those things called they where you scrub the the hard stuff off your feet they, they mm-hmm. have those stone things what are those oh like pumice stone yeah pumice stone yeah get, get bust out the pumice stone <laughs> then we can talk about toe sucking i know i hate my feet being touched or anything involving my feet but my sisters and mom love pedicures and I'm like, oh mm, no! Like I, I really like want to get a pedicure. I mean, I think I'm all for it. I just, it's not really my thing. Yeah, it's the only people touching my feet. Huh. But it was weird because my other path in life before cryptozoology was literally being a nail tech. <laughs> I wanted to do nails because I have one part of my body that grows fast is my fingernails. Hmm. And we're super off topic now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so cryptozoo. That's interesting. That it, uh, usually to determine if it's real or not, mm-hmm. and the way. I don't know. I don't think every Blackfeet person thinks this way, of course. But a lot of what I've heard, the way we see it is that it's not, Bigfoot's not an animal. It's a spirit. Mm. And Bigfoot is there. It's a, one of the spirits that lives mm. in the mountains. Well, it's like shape shifters and like Wendigos and like. Wendigo is creepy, man. I would love to do a full episode just on like native cryptozoology. Yeah. Like, cause I think that it's super curious and super interesting because. The idea of plants, you know, and, and ethnobotany and like all this stuff about how you, their stories behind it and how those stories play within the community. I don't know. I think that to not talk about that, which is you know, exactly why we don't whistle at night. I don't know. It's just something that has been passed down that I don't think people talk about enough. Hmm. Uh, would ghost stories qualify into that? Probably. Because I, I could totally sit around and tell some ghost stories mm-hmm. with people. That'd be cool to have an episode where we just sit around a fire and tell mm-hmm. stories about 
weird animals and ghosts and stuff. <laughs> and I've seen some weird things in the mountains mm-hmm. back in Montana. I've seen birds that technically should not exist. Mm-hmm. I've found different piles of bones that I could not identify, like to belong to any animal that I was familiar with. Mm-hmm. And I've heard some really weird calls, like in the middle of the night or towards dusk and stuff. Mm-hmm. And that stuff used to scare the shit out of me until I started just kind of being like, well, I, I don't know what it is, so why be scared of it? And yeah. I just go to bed. But um, but still, till this very day, it kind of gives me the creeps thinking about it. Like, mm-hmm. What if? Yeah, well, uh, I was talking to someone, and I can't remember who, but they were talking about the guy who is in charge of the longhouse and how he sees ghosts all the time oh, and yeah. all the stuff that happens around there. That it would be interesting to kind of talk about some non-traditional science, I guess. Mm, yeah. <laughs> well, there you go, folks. You can look forward to a cryptozoology episode <laughs> sometime down the road. Yay. Now let's... Okay, so facts. The facts. Facts. Cryptozoology Done. is a thing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so this ethnobotany thing is... It's interesting, though, because the way I see cryptozoology is <laughs> zoology, zoology. I, Annie and I were talking about this. She likes zoology. Zoology. And I like zoology. I think maybe it makes me sound more British. I'm yeah, not sure. I think so. I think that is like the British way to say it. <laughs> yeah. Zoology. <laughs> but the the way I look at ethnobotany in a way is it's kind of like the... So the Annie's going to talk about a, some definitions here in a second. Mm-hmm. But the way I see ethnobotany is there's kind of two sides to it. There's ethnobotanists that are not members of that cultural group or they're not indigenous Mm -hmm. and they go in and they understand the people plant relations and all the interactions and all the different scales of that. Mm -hmm. But then there's also the ethnobotanists that are indigenous and that live that life and that Mm -hmm. actually practice that day in and day out. And I'm curious if there's a, if we should be using different terms for those two different people because they do very different things. It is curious. Well, and I know that, uh, Robin calls herself an ethnobotanist, mm-hmm. you know, and so she's someone that does have this personal interrelationship with the land. Hmm. But yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't really know. It's kind of that idea of like how a lot of indigenous people don't think that they're scientists, but in uh, when other people look in, they are kind of scientists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely going through the method and, <laughs> uh, and a lot, bas- basically every part of the scientific method, mm-hmm. but there's the extra step. I think there's an extra step in the approach and an extra step in the analysis. Mm-hmm. And uh, though the major part, the component of that extra step is to include your feelings and your prayers and your songs and ceremonies and a much, uh, it's a, it's a much more uh, kind of holistic. Uh, yeah. It's a much ho- more holistic and much deeper interpretive framework than offered by West, Western science or academic science. Mm-hmm. But there's power in this other interpretive framework too because it gives us different information. And yeah. that's what I think needs to be clarified more is there's not one way to get information and there's not one way to understand the universe. Mm-hmm. And these different ways will, are going to show us and expose us to different data sets. Mm-hmm. And how could that not be valuable? Right. And I think that's what I, I kind of see the difference is an ethnobotanist from an outside perspective will understand the method behind it as I'm looking at my methods manual for my ethnobotany book. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like really methods based, making sure they follow certain procedures. And I think that 
if you're an indigenous person who identifies in the ethnobotanist, it's not really that, but it's understanding like harvesting times, where to harvest, when to harvest, you know, like the story behind it, if there's a song behind it. And so I think that you're really right on just kind of understanding that there is two different kind of ethnobotanists. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder, and this isn't something I know much about, but I'm I'm curious now if there are already words that are used to describe those differences mm-hmm. within the field of ethnobotany. We could, we could, yeah, I'm sure we could find that out, <laughs> but sure. I don't think that's, I don't think, I don't know. It's just, there's so much out there. It's so difficult to talk about certain ideas within science because in science, we do this thing called specialization, mm-hmm. which is important, but it restricts us from being able to talk with clarity on certain subjects. And for me, this is definitely one of them because I mm-hmm. view myself more on that the indigenous side as mm-hmm. an ethnobotanist. And when I got into botany, I kind of was like, oh, shit, I don't know if I like right. this. Yeah. yeah all the taxonomy yeah. and all the different terms for the different physiological mm-hmm. The parts and the tissues, and mm-hmm. the hormones they use. I mean, there's a lot that goes into understanding the botany or the biology of a plant. Mm-hmm. With ethnobotany, there's a lot to that too, but it's totally different. Yeah. It's more about how you're re- relating to the plants and understanding how those plants fit into the bigger cycles of the seasons and what those signify and mm-hmm. how they relate to other animals and other plants. So it's more about relationships and all these connections, more yeah. than breaking it down and trying to understand plant tissues and mm-hmm. physiology and stuff. Yeah. And so like that's kind of how Merriam-Webster defines the two pretty much. So mm-hmm. they define botany as a branch of biology dealing with plant life. So it's the study of biology. Plants. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's also the properties and life phenomenon exhibited by a plant, plant type, or a plant group. Oh. So and okay. then the definition of ethnobotany is the plant lore of indigenous culture, and it's also the systematic study of such lore. Hmm, that's a pretty big difference. Mm-hmm. So it, that's interesting. So in a lot of ways, ethnobotany is like the cryptozoology of botany. Yeah, pretty much. Wow. Which is kind of how our science fact tied into it. Yeah, huh, <laughs> that's interesting. So, so th- that word lore... I think yeah. among scientists, especially more hard scientists, people like in the physical scientists, they look at that word lore, myth, story in a negative light as if they don't have scientific validity for the mm-hmm. data that they offer. But that's, I think, a huge way to restrict yourself from understanding the bigger patterns in nature is by saying, oh, this data is not valid because it didn't get measured. Yeah. Yeah, so Merriam-Webster defines lore as um, something that is taught, a lesson, or something that is learned, knowledge gained through the study or experience, traditional knowledge or belief. Mm-hmm. And hmm. and if science is just the pursuit of knowledge, the difference between knowing and not knowing, that's totally science. Mm-hmm. Ethnobotany. Ethnobotany, science. Hmm. <laughs> oh, interesting. So when when was it... I know this word is kind of sort of new. It's not, I mean, it's not super new, like yeah, ecology and stuff. Like but it's 130 years, 20 years old. Yeah, relatively speaking, that's new. Mm-hmm. That's really new. Um, so it was by an American, so it was first used by an American botanist named John William Hirschberger. Hirschberger. In 1895. <laughs> I like that name. <laughs> Hirschberger. 
Um, and he, it was during a lecture um, uh, by plants produced by primitive and indigenous peoples. Hmm. Primitive. That's another word that has a lot of negative mm-hmm. connotations to it. I love that primitive. word because the its meaning all it means is back to the original form, mm-hmm. which and isn't that's, bad. Yeah, that's. Yeah. I think that's a really good thing. Actually. I think that's what everybody's trying. Like a lot of re-indigenizing is. Yeah, is getting back to primitive ways mm. of kind of understanding the world. I know. Sometimes I wish I was more primitive. <laughs> Me too. I definitely wished that too. As I enjoyed a really hot shower this morning. Yeah. <laughs> I know eating mochis and yes. Dunkin' Donuts and oh my gosh. going to the farmer's market where it's nice and <laughs> warm inside and Lots walk outside and people have all these gadgets and gizmos that mm-hmm. probably no one's going to buy because they're there to buy food. <laughs> the modern world. It's crazy. It is really crazy. Yeah. yeah. And so um, I guess in... I'm going to get a lot of my information from this article called Historical Historical Perspectives of Ethnobotany. Um, And it was interesting because uh, being indigenous, you kind of focus a lot on your tribe. And I don't really focus on other tribes. I do now because of Onondaga and I've, I learn a lot about them working with other communities. You do mm-hmm. learn a lot. But... It's always United States. It's never what has happened across the world. Yeah. And like plants and kind of like what has happened. So like this kind of like really opened my eyes on like how ethnobotany has been used in India and I think Greco, they talk about that. Um, Babylon. And most of the, most of the planet is not like the united states no definitely not not like the united states yeah so w- what we experience here is way different than what other indigenous people go through mm-hmm. um so yeah so pretty much i say ethnobotany is the study of the relationship between plants and humans so the ethno is the study of humans mm-hmm. of people and uh, bonnie study of plants so they kind of summed it up in four words that humans plants interactions and then their use mm. Yeah, and so a, at least a quarter of that is the relationship aspect, mm-hmm. and yep. that, that's a pretty big that's a pretty big part. Mm-hmm. I would say. So can you say that again? So plants, people, interactions, interactions and, and use. uses. So in a lot of ways, though, the uses also is a relationship. Yeah. So I think half of it is just really kind of understanding how you interact, and then how to, do you and that plant connect, and what then do you use it for? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you stop and smell the flowers? Yes, all the time I do. <laughs> I know. I was just doing that yesterday. <clears throat> and it's funny because hardly anyone does that. Mm-hmm. We'll like literally stop and just get down on the ground and smell a flower. Mm-hmm. I, I look around and most people got their headphones in. They got their head down and they're just yeah. going forward, getting to their next place, not enjoying the journey to get there right when even if you're just going from like illick over to marshall which is just like what 100 meters from each other Probably. just 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 walking across the quad here mm-hmm. at the university there's a lot of beauty there there's a lot of really fascinating things that if you were to just slow down a little smell the flower pull your head out of your ass <laughs> There's there's so much beauty out there i know we there was like we have a willow what willow patch that they that they grow here and there was a huge flipping um 
I don't know what kind of animal it was, like muskrat or like some kind of huge oh, rodent. Oh, yeah. I've seen those around and I'm not sure what they are. And there was like 30 people walking by and I just see this one girl like focused in in the willows and I was like, what are you looking at? And so I was nose. I'm ah, nosy. I'm so super So she's smelling nosy. the flowers. So she was smelling the flowers and I looked up and I was like, holy crap. And she was like, yeah. And I was like, I don't know what that <laughs> is. And I was like, you are you know you're the only one like right now that's like observant. And I was like, and I, I was nosy. So I looked and... Mm-hmm. I'm glad I did. It was like the size of a football or something. It was ginormous. Yeah, there's one that go- comes to my backyard in my apartment and just kind of, yeah. and it, it has a routine that it does. Yeah, I don't and know. And I sit there it watching. Is, and I was yeah. like, oh, and I've never seen that animal before. I don't mm-hmm. know if we have them in Montana. I haven't. It looks like a beaver minus the tail. Yeah. Like, I have no idea what it is. So if anybody knows, can you <laughs> let me know? Yeah. I'm super curious. They're, and they're kind of uh, uh, stout. Mm-hmm. They they don't have long legs, no, nope. um, and they they walk kind of funny. Yeah, and so I was wondering if it's a member of the weasel family. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, but yeah. It's, it's big. It's big, it's big. and it's brown, mm-hmm. and uh, it waddles. It waddles. <laughs> it was so cute. Yeah, but I wonder, like, man, I wonder if it, I wonder if it would try to attack me if I if I scared it or something because yeah. I know a lot of the members of the weasel family can be pretty aggressive, <laughs> and and those things they don't look. Like pushovers, they look mm-hmm. kind of tough. So I was wondering. <laughs> and uh, oh yeah, I've got the subject again. Um, so and, and it's well, kind of sort of the ethnobotany. Yeah, I think it, the how we relate mm-hmm. to these other living beings. That's a big part of it. Mm-hmm. And and what I found interesting was that we don't really think how plants has been used since human evolution or Mm. since the creation or since whenever people believe that you were created. And that's one of the things that it first talks about is that how people primarily, when they first started using plants, it was for food, shelter and protection. Mm -hmm. And then slowly it was like, okay, remedies and medicine and like really figuring out how plants, like how plants can heal you. And then, so yeah, it was like really like, um, you know this, the Rig Vita. Oh, yeah. That's the some of the creation stories mm-hmm. of the ancient Indians, mm-hmm. like super, like super ancient. That's some of the first creation stories of that part of the world, right? Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like a hymn book. And so what they talk about is that a lot of the people then would observe animals and what plants they would eat. And then they, that would help them determine which one was poisonous and which ah, one wasn't. That sounds like... Our relationship, Pikani people's relationship with grizzly bears, mm-hmm. we view them as brothers, especially grizzly bears. And that was the main reason they showed us what medicine was good. They showed us what mm-hmm. roots are good. They showed us even how to get through the mountains, which play, which paths were the, were the best. Mm-hmm. You know, and then like we slowly moved into cultivating and like egg and like making sure that we were able to be sustainable people. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I just think it's really cool to kind of see the progression and how every single point in the progression of human evolution is evolved with plants. Yep. Yeah, plants. And I mean, how do we define ecosystems? Mm-hmm. How do we define landscapes? Exactly. The plants. The plants are the how. I mean, when you when we talk about a certain habitat, like a grassland or a forest, it's all about the plants that are there. Oh man. Oh, and as I'm reading my notes, uh, I mean, forgot about that one. And to Jeff Hacked, I want to talk about about Egyptians peeing on one plant to see if they're gonna if they're pregnant or not. Oh, that's cool. What is talk talk about it? I don't remember what it was. Oh, well, but it, they were just talking about how um um Asian Egyptians believe that medicinal plants were useful in afterlife of the pharaohs. 
So in the pyramids of Giza, there's a dark, they used to have plants. And so now there's a dark room within the resource center at Cairo that ta- that, that shows these plants that were in there. Mm-hmm. So these plants were just as highly recognized as the animals that they took with them, the people that they took with them, huh. you know, that they really served and you don't hear purpose. about that on documentaries about Egypt very much, mm, about the don't. importance of plants, like papyrus. Mm-hmm. That was an extremely important plant for them. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's interesting that you uh, that I don't hear, you don't hear about it often, but they probably have relied on plants. Yeah, ethnobotany. Yeah. And I've heard this, I think I saw this on Ancient Aliens, that where, <laughs> oh, there goes the construction. <laughs> But anyways, the aside from the construction stuff, on Ancient Aliens, they, uh, there was this one episode where they were looking in the pyramids and they found residue or something. They found cocaine, cocaine. or coca leaves or something like oh, that. Yeah. And uh, that, that's it. it's, an, it's, it's crazy because that plant is indigenous to South America, mm-hmm. but they're finding this in North Africa. And... There, it was there thousands and thousands of years mm-hmm. ago, before the age of sail, before telecommunications and all this modern stuff that allows us to actually transport these plants around and stuff. So, right. so I wonder, do we really actually understand our history? I don't think so. I think it is really hard to understand the history, especially I think now, um, like a hundred years from now, you'll be able to tell the history pretty well because it's everywhere. I mean. History is documented at any point now. We have CTV cameras everywhere. Yeah. You know, everything is everywhere. But back then, like, I... It was just... You, you don't know. Stone tablets. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, and I think that a lot of people, um, you know, petty people that just, like, got rid of a bunch of history at one point was mm. just, like... Yeah, like that pharaoh that didn't want the dude that was all coked out of it to be in their history. So they're like, let's just wipe this out and then we'll pretend like that never happened. Or how um, a lot of women that were pharaohs had to pretend like they were men in order to keep their faces on the statue. So they would Mm. wear the the pointy beard, you know, so that they resembled a man, Uh even though that they were really, really strong women who were pharaohs. I think there was five of them throughout egyptian history where they were actually women and a lot of them oh that'd be a fun episode but we're also (laughs) yeah it's Um, really easy to get off track on the on the indian science show yeah because it's indian science it is um and it's just crazy i mean because you know this whole idea of cultures that i don't understand i think are super fascinating and like that like this pee thing so I saw it on Facebook and I was like, oh, that can't be true. And so like I started doing more things. Into Wasn't it, it for uh, like to find out if they're pregnant? Yeah. That's crazy. And so over 3,000 years ago, um, Egyptian women would urinate on barley or wheat seeds. And so they would quickly sprout, which indicated pregnancy. So I think that uh, barley, this is where it's kind of not, it, it can variate. But they said that if barley sprouted, it would be a man. If it would be a boy. And if it was wheat, then it would be a female. Hmm. But wow. But it ends up finding out that, like, several modern studies have shown that it correctly identifies 70 to 85% of pregnancies. What? Not that it's, me- not that it's like, the sex of it, but, like, it is, like, they will Oh, be that pregnant. they are actually that pregnant. That they are actually pregnant. Okay. I was wondering, yeah. like, how the hell, like, what, what is it, those plants are just really finely tuned right? to certain hormones <laughs> or something? <laughs> yeah, but that's what they say. Is like, it's, like, they end up, the estrogen within pregnant women will help sprout these plants. 
when they're pregnant. And I was like, that's the craziest thing that like they knew 3000 years ago. That's how their pregnancy test was. It's not as simple as going to the dollar store and buying a dollar pregnancy test. You had to pee on we are barley to know if you were pregnant or not. Hmm. Dang. That's really, that's fascinating. <laughs> that would be, that'd be crazy if that they, they were actually really accurate with the sex of the baby too. Yeah. Well, that's what they said. And so I, they'd say that that's a little harder to prove, but mm-hmm. by telling you're pregnant. Yeah. Like that, that's a pretty that big shows. deal though. Mm-hmm. The, that, that, that actually works. Yeah. And it's the estrogen that, that should, that uh, causes them to sprout faster. Mm-hmm. Is that what it is? Mm-hmm. That kind of makes sense too. It does. I think that when, uh, I wish I knew more about hormones. Yeah, I, th- I think so, too. I think understanding the human body is amazing as I'm trying to understand the brain. <laughs> yeah, because I know, you know we all men and women produce estrogen mm-hmm. and testosterone, mm-hmm. but women typically produce more estrogen than testosterone, and then men produce mm-hmm. more testosterone than estrogen, but they're both. We need both. Mm-hmm. And, w- and then when you're – I'm pretty sure – that when you are carrying a boy, you have a lot more testosterone running through your body, mm-hmm. which alleviates some heightened emotions. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> Thanks to my sister, I learned that. <laughs> yeah. I know that there are things called xenoestrogens z- or xenoestrogens, mm-hmm. which are just foreign estrogens, and they mimic estrogen in our bodies. So, and this is a big problem for a lot of people in developed nations because of the plastic, how plastic is everywhere and plastic is full of xenoestrogens. Mm -hmm. And so these mimic these naturally occurring hormones in our body. And then, so our body thinks, well, we have way too much estrogen and responds accordingly. And I found this news article about these two boys that were being, their mom was just bathing them in uh, lavender, like she'd put lavender essential oil mm-hmm. and that's a xenoestrogen. Mm. And her young boys, they're eight and 10. They developed breasts. Oh, wow. Isn't that trippy? And they, she took away the essential oil mm-hmm. and the, the breasts went away. Wow. I would like to know that because a lot of, uh, my, my, my sister's sister who I adore, they're really into young living essential oils which Mm -hmm. is like this farm to oil company that gives you like the purest feelings on essential oils i do too um you know but i also think that she's going through chemo and like some pretty intense Uh, radiation and so at some point i'm just like whatever makes you feel better like i think is good and so I, and, and it's natural and you, you know, I, you, you know, to a point that that's interesting. Yeah, I, I, I guess like as to, natural as taking tons of flowers <laughs> to make a little teeny bottle yeah. full of oil. Yeah. About as natural as that gets. Right. And, you, and that kind of gets into this idea of, of large scale egg, you know, mm-hmm. for these products that really make people happy. You know, you take away landscapes, you take away viable land that could be used for food and the biodiversity there mm-hmm. that's the and and so it's interesting like i I've, I've always had mixed feelings about it but i have a diffuser that i love to burn that i love to use and i use lavender and my favorite is lime and orange and lemon and it smells so fresh and citrusy and it makes my little room smell really mm. nice i'm a big fan of eucalyptus yeah eucalyptus like i don't so it's interesting um you know, as as I am venturing down my smell hole. Yeah. 
<laughs> that doesn't <laughs> sound right. Yeah. Um, my smell journey. Yeah, the, the, the smelly rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, my smelly rabbit hole. You know, I, I, I want to do a natural way of smelling and so scent pouches and how frequently then you have to change your scent pouch and it's interesting. Hmm. I, I think, I think smells are, 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 are definitely. Yeah. And the, our, our humans, as, as far as humans go, our go-to smelly stuff all comes from plants. Yeah. All comes from plants. Yep. Mm-hmm. And even fermented foods often are plants. There's not many meats that people ferment. I mean, there's the, what that, what's that stuff? Is it muktuk? Or there's some kind of bl- uh, blubber or whale meat that they, mm. up in the northern latitudes, they ferment it in uh, like, uh, what are those, uh, like a s- seal skin or a seal stomach or oh, something. I and they put it in there and then they just leave it mm-hmm. for m- like a month or months mm. and then they eat it. And it's a delicacy mm-hmm. to them. They love it. Kind of like maybe they would hate bitterroot. Yeah. <laughs> but we love it. We love bitterroot. Or like people kind of <laughs> look down, they kind of turn their nose up at dry meat. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm, re- I'm realizing, I wonder if a part of the drying process is a little bit of fermentation going on mm-hmm. to preserve it. And there's this cool thing where each culture kind of has its own gross thing mm-hmm. that it loves and that other cultures don't like. Right. Well, uh, Salish people used plants as a preservative. So they would lay the meat down. I think that they would dry it like dry meat. Mm-hmm. And then they would cover it in wild mint, bergamot, and uh, pineapple weed. Oh, yeah. And I know so, that um, sweet pine was used a lot, too. It would be powdered and then mm-hmm. sprinkled to keep, keep insects and other things yep. off of it. Yeah, so plants have been definitely used in all aspects of of evolving with the land. Yeah, and they're at the center of our ceremonies. Mm-hmm. That I know that most of the ceremonies that I cherish and that help my family a lot, there's a tree that's involved. It's always surrounding this tree. And not only that, but the the all the animals are also there too so it's the animal all the animals and all the plants and the people come together in this place and or this lodge and we pray together and we create mm-hmm. medicine together and it's not like we're concocting medicines sitting around a fire actually brewing up some tinctures or anything like that but the the actual act of being there and engaging with each other that is what's creating the medicine. So we we create the medicine together. It's not like kind of like how maybe modern people would think of medicine. How it's mm-hmm. like you, it's in a pill, it's in yeah. it's in a tincture, it's in a salve, it's in this whatever it is. But the actual act of being there and doing the ceremonies and singing the songs and uh, putting your prayers up that creates the medicine. But we can't do it without the plants, and that. I've always I've always looked at that with a lot of respect since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's one of the many things that taught me that as long as you walk with respect in the mountains, you're going to be okay. Yeah. And I've 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 done that and I've never been hurt, I've never been charged by a bear even though I've seen Right. I don't know how many grizzly bears I've come across like in really close proximity. Mm-hmm. I've even been face to face with black bears before. And never once have ever felt afraid. Yeah. Well, that's what like I don't Cause I worked at Job Corps and so we would always have black bears that would come in and try to get our food. Mm-hmm. And like, 
so I kind of got that aversion of not being scared by them because literally they are more scared of you than you are of them. Oh yeah, especially black bears. Especially black bears. Yeah, they yeah. they run. I've never <laughs> I've never seen run. one. Yeah. Uh, kind of i've never seen one act like a grizzly yeah i haven't either where grizzlies they never run they're either gonna just like stand there and stare you down or or they'll charge that's uh that's just how they are Mm -hmm. they're the biggest baddest boys on the block they got no reason to run right and i think hypocrisies hypocrisy Oh, Hippocrates? Hippocrates. Yeah. This is this is your person. Oh, he yeah. he would agree with what you said because in thirteen in three hundred and seventy seven AD, he said that let your cure be your food and eat your medicines. AD? I thought he was around before that. Mm, this one could be wrong, but it says three seventy seven AD. Huh. I might have my timelines mixed up. I thought he was around like BC. Because by that point, three the 300s AD they were already con- the Greeks were conquered by the Romans interesting so maybe that's cool I didn't know that he was a contemporary of like mm-hmm. um so that that was after um what's his name like the last kind of cool emperor uh he was on that movie gladiator the old guy oh with Marcus Aurelius that was after his time oh okay so the Roman yeah. Empire was already well in decline at that point. Hmm. So I wonder if this is where like kind of Greeks started getting elevated. Hmm. Maybe I don't know. I know the Romans loved Greek stuff. Yeah. So the Hippocrates. Yeah, that's a really good quote. Let yeah. food. Uh, the way I remember it is let uh, uh, let food be thy medicine and thy medicine be food or something like that. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of what that's saying? Like uh, basically food, I mean, your medicine starts with what you're eating. Yeah. So it's like, let your cure be your food. So no matter what it is, as long as you're eating good food, like that's going to be your cure. And then mm-hmm. you eat your medicines. Yeah. Ah, oh, I totally agree with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm glad that I wrote that down because exactly what you were talking now about. Now I'm curious. I want to, I think I'm probably going to research that dude a little more after this. Right. Yeah, I might be mixing him up with this other guy, the historian. Um, he was like the father of history. The guy that I'll remember his name in a minute. Yeah, I was like, I have no idea. I'm not a historian. I Herodotus. I, I'd like like that's history, who I'm. Yeah. That's who I'm mixing him up with. Herodotus, and he was he was BC. He was a BC dude. Dang. Interesting. Um, yeah. So history. History is so crazy. There's so much is. stuff that happened, and some of it's pretty epic. Like I, I wonder sometimes, like how the hell were people dealing with this when it was going on? Mm-hmm. All the, like the collapse of the Roman Empire. Or just the fact that the Roman Empire actually existed. Mm-hmm. Well, how did people think about stuff right. that were living in the empire, but also the people that were outside of the empire, mm-hmm. they were looking in, kind of maybe sometimes like, oh, those fucking Romans, uh, I don't want any of that. Right. But other times where people might have been thinking, wow, they they got some cool things going on there. Mm-hmm. I think I want some of that. Yeah. And I also wonder then how their knowledge was shared across Europe or Asia or because it's a vast continents like where mm-hmm. how then was the knowledge traded and and where how was that exchange happening because here in the United States you can kind of say like oh tribal affiliation stayed within like a, a certain distance as you can walk well kind of there's a lot of evidence that shows at least Pecani people, we traded all the way down into Mexico. Yeah. So then how then does that, like, how then does trade systems work with plants? Yeah. You know, I, I think that, 
Oh, that could be super curious, especially because this one is saying that uh, Sumerian whole oh, ideograms dating. I don't, I don't, I don't know exactly what an ideogram is. I, I don't know. I don't is think it, I know what that is either. Um, so it's is it I D I O gram? I D E O grams. Ideograms. Ideograms. Hmm. So it may uh, interesting. Um. So they could they refer to plant use four thousand BC. That is a long time ago to be understanding the knowledge of plants and kind of plant use. And, uh, yeah, in Sumatran cultures are one of the first people that had um, written languages or some type of documented history, right? Because they're mm. the ones that have uh, drawings that look like once again, ancient aliens are going to talk about it. <laughs> We're, we always talk about aliens. <laughs> um, where they have actual pictures of rocket ships and pictures of someone that looks like they are wearing a um, a helmet, like oh, a, yeah. like a space helmet. That stuff is so trippy because mm-hmm. you can interpret it all both ways. You can mm-hmm. interpret it like, well, maybe they were they maybe that's how they were seeing what yeah. they're seeing, and it wasn't really an alien. It was just how they're interpreting mm-hmm. this thing they're seeing. But it very well could be an yeah. extraterrestrial species is like, hey, these guys aren't that advanced yet. We can hang out with them. They're not going to fucking worry about it too much. They're they're not going to use our technology because they're too, right. they're too primitive. And now maybe mm-hmm. that's why they stopped hanging out with us maybe. so openly is yeah. they see, wait a minute, they're getting a little more shit. They got nukes. <laughs> we got to stay away now. No more involvement. <laughs> yeah. So an ideogram, I, I just looked up the definition here. It's a picture or symbol used... In a system of writing to represent a thing or an idea, but not a particular word or phrase. Hmm. So it's, it sounds like it's similar to hieroglyphics. Mm-hmm. And I'm yeah. curious what the difference between – maybe hieroglyphics are a form of ideogram. Maybe. This yeah. Be, we, can, we can do a whole other episode on, on that one. Languages. Yeah. Words. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, it's just crazy to think about. For so the first record of medicinal plants of the Indo-Pak, which is India, right? Indo, oh Pakistan, In, Pakistan yeah. India. So that that region, um, subcontinent. So what's found in the Rig Veda, which we had talked about, um, which is one of four sacred uh, texts of Hinduism, and so they're known as the Vedas. Mm-hmm. But they were between forty-five hundred to sixteen hundred BC. And it became the oldest repository of human knowledge of plants of 67 plants. Wow. And that's insane when you think about that timeline. 4,500. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 the time between the writing of the Rig Veda and the, the uh, founding of the Roman Republic is further back in history to the Roman Republic than the Roman Republic is to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's exactly. insane, right? Right. Exactly. It's like that, it was ancient to the Romans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's crazy that, to think like yeah. that they had they knew that plants were that important that they knew that they had to write it down for the descriptions and how they used them. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think that using archival data, especially interviews of ethnobotany work, is so important, which is why I'm focusing solely on interviews that were done by our elders in previous ethnobotany studies. Yeah. Because I think that they knew and like they interacted with those plants in a way that we cannot understand today how they were used because we don't look at plants the same as they did back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think about that a lot. How we actually, how are like literally how we see something, mm-hmm. how, how it might have been different yeah. back 
three, 400 years ago when we didn't have access to technology that shifts our worldview in a, in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And I know that. So thinking, I'm thinking about how we viewed plants as relatives and how we, we still do that. We still look at plants as relatives till this mm-hmm. very day. But I wonder how different it is now compared to 500 years ago, before there was any contact with Europeans, how that rela- how that relationality mm-hmm. played out in our actual perception of these plants. Maybe we literally did hear songs, like mm-hmm. audibly hear songs. And this is something that is talked about even to this day is that all we got to do is go out to these places and these plants, these animals, the rocks, they'll, we can still learn from them the exact same way that our mm-hmm. ancestors did. We just got to go there and yeah. you have to spend time in these places. And you have to spend seasons there too. You have to understand yeah. like how it changes throughout the landscape from when they're blooming to when they're not blooming to when what they look like at different stages of their life. Like you, you had to spend generations on that land to get this information that people have on plants. Hmm. And that's what's crazy is because I think that we are so privileged now, you know, with our food, where we get our food. You can even get your food sent to you. Mm. You can can go to a grocery store, tell them what you want, pick it up. You don't even have to leave your car. Yeah. Have you heard of Instacart? Uh -uh. Uh-uh. It's crazy. So you can sign up for it and then go go on their little section that's for Mm. Wegmans and order whatever you want. And someone will go shopping for you mm-hmm. and bring your groceries to your house. Oh my god, to your house. Yeah, oh right gosh. up to your door. Yeah, that's, that's what, insane. Walmart. My, um, that's how I know about this. Is my cousin does the Walmart pickup where she'll just get what she wants, drives, and she's like, "I just pop up my trunk and I don't have to get out of my car." Hmm. I'm like, "Oh my gosh, that's that is crazy." I don't know. Yeah, I don't know about all that. That reminds know? me of an Aldo Leopold quote <laughs> from a San County Almanac. He said, "The modern paradigm." Is convenience at mm-hmm. any cost. And, re- and he said that over a half century ago. And it really, really is because, you know, we don't use, and, and that's what is crazy is because plants had to be used in every single life, every single aspect of your life. Mm-hmm. Food, medicine, toiletries, everything came from the land. Now, everything comes from a grocery store. Or some kind of convenient location for us. Yeah, and then we supplement mm-hmm. our groceries, quote unquote, mm-hmm. I'm using air quotes here, our groceries with with our garden plants. Yeah. And like, I really love how now there's like a really, really big food sovereignty movement to understand that you need to get back to that, to the relationship with land. Yeah. But they don't talk about the relationship non-food wise or non-medicinal wise like what happens with those plants that use for for toiletries or plants for like horse medicines you know something that that we definitely don't need today yeah or tools like plants that were used to make rope Mm -hmm. that's extremely important but but that knowledge disappeared super fast Mm -hmm. as soon as rope got brought into our communities yep it disappeared so quickly that we actually lost the word for those plants mm-hmm. and now they're called rope plants. And Man. that's interesting how quickly knowledge can change mm-hmm. when two different cultures are interfacing with each other. But it goes both ways too. It wasn't just the Europeans that affected our cultures. We affected their cultures mm-hmm. big time. And there's this branch of philosophy called native pragmatism. 
that mm-hmm. really, especially now with some of the modern philosophers are really stressing that point that, look, it wasn't a one-way street. Mm-hmm. The indigenous peoples of the United States affected the culture of the United States just as much mm-hmm. as the, that culture has affected us, except it, it is different. It's mm-hmm. different because they had more different technology. They had more advanced weapons. And so, and they had more advanced germs. Yeah. So that part of the effect is really hard to overlook. It's really hard to overlook and and to look beyond that and see how we affected their cultures. And one way is that pragmatic look, that pragmatic look at the landscape. like, And that's how Aldo Leopold looked at it, Mm -hmm. that it wasn't just a landscape full of resources. Yeah. It was a landscape full of other living systems that we inherently have to relate to in some way or another mm-hmm. and how we relate to those things that is going to determine how we engage with them on a very practical level right and i think that's yeah. the biggest message that i get from some of this ethnobotany stuff is that it's practical yeah it's very practical and who doesn't like practicality yeah well i mean like yeah especially was because you're not gonna do like put a lot of energy towards something unless it's practical it gives you what you want you also are showing reciprocity you know how how and what everything works you know it, it's definitely a lot of what did what did we say at the workshop um observations versus mm. um the scientific method yeah pretty much i yeah. think is what is what we figured out mm-hmm. and i also think that it was really interesting that one lady um when she talked about how indigenous worldviews tend to look at it in seasons versus non-indigenous people that look at it from daily routines mm-hmm. and i think that's so important to understand and like getting back into seasonal eating and like eating what is there during the season yeah i and that's tough because mm-hmm. uh, like December rolls around and you want some guacamole. Yeah. What are you going to do? You can't. You're supposed to. That's, that's <laughs> when you eat all your stored like meats and like preserved yeah, foods. Like exactly. That's what you you're don't have guacamole. You don't have guacamole. I'm sorry, but guacamole is probably not a. So maybe that could be the slogan for eating seasonally. Gu- guacamole is not meant to be eaten year round. <laughs> it's not. It's a special time. <laughs> guacamole season. Summer. Well, I guess when would guacamole be for us because avocados aren't a north american food so that's a good point maybe they're really i don't know much about their seasonality Mm -hmm. so i'm curious if they even have a season or if they're able to be produced year round yeah because once you're that close to the equator a lot of your temperature it doesn't really fluctuate fluctuate, yeah Yeah, it's just rain is is what ends up changing hmm i think i'm gonna look into that because i eat a lot of i eat a lot of avocados and I I know that in the winter I try not to eat as much yeah. because I feel like, oh, it's out of season. I shouldn't be doing this. So, Same with berries too. I try not mm-hmm. to eat berries in the middle, like fresh berries in the middle of winter because I know those berries are yeah. coming from a place half the world away and it's taking an insane amount of fossil fuels to it, get them to yeah. my mouth. And so I figure, well, if I just don't eat them, then, then, mm-hmm. uh, then I'm a good person. Right. <laughs> I'm a better person there for not eating berries like in December. A hundred million more people that agree with you. Not a hundred. Yeah. A hundred million more people that are starting to start thinking like you. <laughs> yeah. That's a big number. It's try. It's crazy to think about the fact that there's over 300 million people in just this country. Mm-hmm. That's a, that 
I struggle to understand that number, let yeah. alone 7 billion. Right. Well, I struggle to understand how Montana has a population of a million. I know, <laughs> Over a million. Huh? Like, that, that still blows my mind that there's that many people in Montana. But if you think about it, like, New York City has, like... <laughs> Only like 12 it. times that much? Oh, yeah. Just of the whole state? It's so congested in New York City that I... The plants that I saw there, I felt so bad for every time I was walking oh, through. Oh, yeah. But it's like of, they're in prison, huh? Yeah. And it was interesting because one of the flowers that were there were tulips. Oh, yeah. Just a bunch of tulips on the sidewalk. And I was like, okay, I'm okay with that. They're pretty. Like, they're they're nice to look at. But then I'm also wondering, like, how many people actually notice that they're there? Yeah, and they only bloom for a week, mm-hmm. so they're 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 either replacing those, yeah, or and just yeah. How are they keeping up with that? Yeah, and mm-hmm. that's kind of that's a weird. Do you know where the most tulips? Which do you know which country produces the most tulips in the world? Um, is it okay? Country, I got to think of what country this is. It was a. Uh, uh, have you seen the Botany of Desire? Oh, they no. talk about it. In isn't that what you and Kyra were talking about the other day? But I think it's like, um, isn't it like Netherlands or like yep. Amsterdam? It's yeah. ne- Nederlands. Oh, yeah. Nederlands. Your roommate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You taught me how to say it. Or Holland. 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 <laughs> or Brabant. Brabant. That's where he's yeah. from. Brabant. Brabant. No, Brabant. Because or something like that. My mom loves tulips. And in, oh, I'm going to get this wrong. In Washington. They are pretty. They have like a really, really tulip, like a tulip festival. Somewhere mm. where she went to once and she absolutely adored it. Yeah. I think tulips are something that it's like that kind of instant beauty because you know that it's only going to be like that for a little bit. So like uh-huh. I feel like you appreciate it more when it does bloom. Hmm. Yeah, tulip gardens. Because you, you, you wouldn't look at a tulip the same as, well, I mean, I guess I would because I understand. But a tulip versus a Douglas fir. You know, you're not going... To aesthetically look at them the same, even though I think Douglas firs are pretty, you know, mm. just like tulips are. But it's a tree, you know. It's a it's a pine tree that, and it's huge sees, that that everyone sees all the time. So it's just like it's not as cute because it's, it's too know, big. It's too big. Yeah, <laughs> you can hug it, but you can't snuggle with it. <laughs> you can snuggle tulips. <laughs> mm. That's an interesting. So we we meant to talk about. Uh, some other things in this episode, oh. but we didn't really get to that. We were we wanted to talk about camas and bitterroot, mm-hmm. but we're coming to the end of our hour here, so let's go ahead and wrap it up with some of the things that we're grateful for. Yeah, and I'm personally grateful for camas <laughs> <laughs> and bitterroot, so that's what I'm going to talk about as far as gratitude goes, because mm-hmm. these two plants are extremely important. And speaking ethnobotanically, they like bitterroot. Yeah. It's in the creation story and yeah. it's and then camas i know for picani people we there was we had access to some camas but we would trade our most important resource just to get camas mm-hmm. that's like we'd trade bison robes yeah and we would trade bison meat and all sorts of stuff like lots of it for camas specifically for camas and so uh it's really fascinating to think that this one flower was so important that it rivaled salmon. Yeah. And and then bitterroot was more specifically important to people that lived in those ecosystems. Mm-hmm. And so it's this fascinating dynamic that happens between people and plants where depending where we're at, we're going to value different plants simply because that plant is 
more abundant there than mm-hmm. in other places, but that doesn't stop other people in different places from valuing it. It just makes it to where they have to do different things to be able to like get it, I guess. Right. Well, yeah, I think that not recognizing, especially if you are Pakani or um, Salish, not understanding the importance of canvas and bitterroot. I don't know. It's, it's hard to explain. It how is hard to explain how important it is without um, using those numbers and science. Yeah, because Salish people, uh, you know, have spanned from Pacific Coast to Salish, which is the interiormost, oh, western, eastern, easternmost band of Salish, and we resided in the Bitterroot Valley, so we're the Bitterroot Salish, and we relied heavily on Bitterroot during famines. Yeah, when that's interesting because Amskapi Pikani means scabby robes. Scabby robes. Yeah, and it talks about our uh, bison. Like there was a certain time when the the bison hides mm-hmm. where there was something that happened. I don't know the full story, but the uh, it, but it's a part of our identity as a people. Mm-hmm. Is is the the that uh, and so this is not really ethnobotany because it has to do with it's bison, but the Eth- bison are. Largely responsible for the Great Plains ecosystem. Yeah, they were like elephants. They mm-hmm. determined and maintained that ecosystem. Yep, and a huge reason why the Great Plains and these huge grasslands are disappearing is because there's no more bison out there taking mm-hmm. care of them. And they're no longer fire regimes. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and the, the bison chips, bison dung, mm-hmm. was one of the most important sources of fuel mm. for fire. Out in the plains because you, there's not many trees, right? Right. And the trees that are there are in the river bottoms, mm. and you c- sometimes you got to go for a long time to be able to find a river out mm-hmm. in the Great Plains. So bison dung, and that would not be n- as flammable or as useful for fire if it weren't for the plants they were eating. Yep, it's a, it's so amazing just to see how everything had to be perfect for them to understand how that ecosystem worked mm-hmm. and for them to observe all of this knowledge and to understand how that worked when you yourself aren't a bison. Yeah. You're, you don't speak the same language. You can only go off of observations and like really learning and listening from the land. Hmm. So yeah, I'm grateful for Camus and I'm grateful for Bitterroot because they teach me personally how important it is to not just understand the kind of that Hippocratic, that Hippocrates mm-hmm. side of it, that it's medicine and it's food, but that there are re- relatives and they have a lot to teach us yeah. about how to live our lives and about how to be good stewards and good caretakers of the land. Mm-hmm. And simply by engaging with them and learning what they like, yeah, that can teach you a lot. Exactly. It's, crazy i don't know i I just still i i think about my knowledge now and i think about if i was put in that situation what i would do Mm -hmm. you know because it's completely different you know it's it's a intelligence that i can't even comprehend right now yeah and that gets me thinking of this thing this medicine man told me like eight years ago or something that plants don't make mistakes Mm -hmm. they don't they they really don't. That's like, why they're the best teachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, because in a lot because they don't make mistakes, they allow us to make mistakes mm-hmm. and learn in a completely different way because we can see the other side of that, like 
these things that don't make mistakes can teach us a lot about how we can learn from our mistakes. Mm -hmm. That's pretty weird. It is <laughs> it's a weird, weird roundabout way of thinking of it. But, <laughs> um, mm. So I'm thankful this week was a long week for me. I had a lot of workshops and one of the workshops that I helped, um, I want to facilitate, but I helped kind of get them here and make sure that people were interested in it, um, was the witness to injustice blanket exercise. Um, and it's led by neighbors of the Onondaga nation and also friends from the Onondaga nation. Um, there was Tuscarora people there too. So kind of hood and Ashodi nation. Um, but it is a, uh, interactive workshop to advance greater respect between indigenous and non-indigenous peoples. And participating in that exercise, really kind of helped me understand that the oppression of indigenous people isn't who we are, mm. that we, that we're not victims of oppression, but that throughout the since time immemorial that we have been resilient people and that we should feel empowered by who we are. Yeah. We're survivors of oppression. We are. And, and I think that I needed that because our research is, can be really hard and taxing just by what you read. Um, yeah. You know, thinking of bigger pictures, understanding historic traumas, um, intergenerational traumas, and kind of how that plays in. And so this blanket exercise um, starts you off with in Turtle Island, um, with particularly just the United States, um, so north, south, east, and west. And they go history by history from Christopher Columbus until now and, like, showing the, how our land was taken and how everything – Boarding schools, smallpox, um, killing, like everything that you can think about, they talk about. And then you yourself are, so I was a victim of smallpox. And so I died at a certain point. And I had to go sit down. And that whole time, I felt nothing but love and respect and understanding of my elders mm. and the people because I've, I've had a issue you know with irbs and kind of community involvement and kind of figuring that out and it just really helped me to bring back into perspective how resilient and how just amazing and strong indigenous people have been since the beginning you know having to live on the land is hard yeah and having no idea what you're going to eat but then learning from it and then surviving. And now I look at the history of Salish and their forced migration and their, you know, removal in a completely different way because they're strong. They did it. They, there was two years where the government had no aid, so they didn't plant any food and they had to sell all everything in order to survive. And then the moment they got onto the reservation, they started their egg. And they started cultivating and they started making sure that they were going to live. Mm -hmm. And I think that I got so wrapped up in that, that I was so thankful that like <laughs> I talked to the the lady who I was helping. I was like, I want to be a facilitator. Like I want to be like this on my side of the United States. And I want to be able to do this for my people because it was very empowering because a lot of the people that were, the facilitators were native people that are doing some great things and that were really understanding. And like, they talked to me afterwards and, you know, wanted to know about what I was doing. And it was just really, it's always great to have indigenous people just be so excited for what you're doing. And so I'm 
extremely grateful for that because it kind of helped me recenter myself. Hmm. Yeah. I know those kinds of things can be very important and it's really hard to actually kind of explain how impactful something like that is until you go and actually participate and experience what it feels like. Anybody should do an interactive workshop like this. I know that there's a bunch of boarding school ones that people do throughout the country. If you're non-Indigenous, do it. Yeah, it'll help help you understand some of our perspectives on Mm -hmm. history and who we are and what we've gone through. Mm -hmm. And you know what? I really don't like victimhood thinking, victimhood mentalities, but... You have to acknowledge the past mm-hmm. and you have to acknowledge the shit that people went through. Yep. Otherwise, you're never going to understand how yeah, they think. Exactly. And I, it totally makes sense. It's very appealing to think that we're, ju- we're just oppressed mm-hmm. and that we're victims of oppression. But it doesn't really help. It doesn't really help us move forward and stay resilient. Mm-hmm. It's not a good way to think. Yep. So that's what I'm doing now is I'm just remembering the resilience and I'm moving forward and I will get my master's and then we're, I don't know then. Yeah. Well on, well on your way to being a badass. Yeah. Well on my way. (laughs) Mm, So I'm, I'm grateful for one extra thing. The merchandise that we just put out and we're selling right now (laughs) for the being indigenous in the modern world campaign. Mm -hmm. And this is a big part of it is reconnecting with the plants. And yep. realizing that these relationships and these connections are still there. And that's a huge part of being indigenous in the modern world or to just go be indigenous in the modern world. Mm-hmm. And it's not exclusive to native people either. You can become indigenous mm-hmm. in the modern world. You can re-indigenize yourself to place and learn what it actually means to be indigenous yep. in the modern world. B-I-M-W. So we'll we'll be posting more about that. And if you happen to see that or if you want a hoodie with a really cool logo and our our the name of our podcast just go to www.bonfire.com slash indian science show and you can buy one of those support our show so we can get cool gear and nice microphones (laughs) and produce better content yes which we would love to do for the future yeah we're always trying to make it better Mm -hmm. so support us if you can if not share the post and we'll be Looking at who shared the posts and we'll, after about a week of the Mm -hmm. campaign, we're going to pick some winners to get a free hoodie, a free shirt, a letter from us, and then a special surprise. Yes. So if you share that post (laughs) for our Being Indigenous in the Modern World campaign, you will be automatically entered to win a cool prize after a couple weeks. All right. Well... That was a little, little fun. I don't think we... Good episode. Yeah, we didn't get to everything we wanted to. But <laughs> no, we did not. <laughs> that happens. That happens a lot. Got about half of it. Yeah. Either way, I'm grateful. And mm-hmm. thanks for listening, folks. Namathwichdaman. Mm-hmm. Thanks for joining us, everyone. If you like the episode, make sure you go to our iTunes page and you leave us a review. Yes. Give us a like. Yes. And five stars. Five stars. Just because, five stars. Just because you, you want to. If you don't like iTunes, you can also follow us on our social media pages. Oh, yeah. And you can drop a comment or leave a review on there, too. Yep. Mm-hmm. And we also have a website. Yes, we do. <laughs> and it's a really cool one called IndianScienceShow.wordpress.com. But if you'd like to just access our site directly from the place that hosts it, it's the same thing, but Indian Science Show, 
www.podient.co. We would love to hear from you guys. Yeah. And Indian Science Show is spelled N-D-N-S-C-I-E-N-C-E-S-H-O-W dot wordpress dot com. Thank you for lending us your ears. And now you should go use your fingers and your eyes to go leave us a review. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>